Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're going to talk now about decision-making and problem-solving. So let me start right off the bat with a problem about baseball bats. Ready? So a bat and a ball costs $1.10 altogether. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? That's Maggie Toplak, an associate professor at York University in Canada. She studies rational thinking. And I'm going to give you that problem again in case it went by a little quickly the first time. You've got a bat and a ball. Together, they cost a dollar and ten cents. The bat is a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Feel free to take a second here, because I tried to solve this problem, and it took more than a second. Um, let's see. <laughs> I don't usually do these kinds of things on the radio. Um, okay, so let's see. And um, 90 plus 10 is not going to work. 95... I mm, 95 plus 15 would work and then but there wouldn't um a dollar oh me uh, how about a dollar five and five cents you've got it that's right okay that is very actually a very tricky question this is a problem that's hard not because of the math skills it uses which are addition and subtraction but because of the rationality that is required to tackle it And I'm actually really glad that you got the wrong answer initially, because over 90% of uh, university students in some of the samples we've seen actually get that problem wrong. But uh, the reason that that problem is particularly appealing is it's almost like you have this automatic response of 10 cents, right? And Yeah. And, you know, you think some problems you'd say, oh, well, I don't know the answer to that. It's actually fascinating that that you give this automatic answer. And and not only do you give this answer, you think it's right. If you initially thought that the bat was a dollar and the ball was 10 cents, that's because, according to Maggie Toplak, our brains are cognitive misers. We tend to default to the most easily computed response or the most easily retrieved response, which often serves us well. But in these types of problems that we're studying, we realize that they don't serve you well and that you should be calculating a better response. Just about 100 years ago, intelligence tests made a huge splash in America, first for testing soldiers entering World War I and then as the sorts of IQ tests that we think of today. Toplak is the co-author of The Rationality Quotient Toward a Test of Rational Thinking, which argues we've spent a long time ignoring rationality in favor of intelligence, and it's high time for a rationality test, something she and her colleagues have developed. But isn't being intelligent part of being rational? Don't smart people make more rational decisions? Well, so the data suggests that they do, but the data also suggests that that correlation is very weak. Carrie Morwich is a professor of marketing and a faculty scholar at Boston University. He also studies rationality. And he makes a crucial point. Plenty of smart people aren't that rational, and plenty of rational people aren't that smart. Rationality is its own separate skill, and not having it can have huge downsides, despite the fact that we don't really give it its due. So, how do you know if you are rational? First, if you're not too confident about what you know, that's good. So, for example, weather forecasters actually become, despite like most people's belief, become incredibly accurate at mm-hmm. predicting the weather. Mm-hmm. But if you give them similar kinds of tasks where they have to estimate their con- so they have to estimate their confidence in 
their general knowledge of trivia questions, for example, you don't see that transfer from their accuracy mm. in making confidence judgments about precipitation to confidence judgments about general knowledge. So a weather forecaster tells you they have 90% confidence it's going to rain tomorrow. That confidence tends to be totally supported by the facts. And weather forecasters get percentages. They know when to say they're only 30% sure and when to ratchet it up to 90%. But that confidence when it comes to calibrating percentages only applies to the weather. So if I gave them like 10 questions right, and I say, how many of these questions do you think you got right? They would tend to be just as overconfident as someone who's not used to making these kinds of probabilistic predictions. And Maggie Toplak from York University says lots and lots of us are overconfident. Being overconfident, that's right. It can lead to, to bad things. And in uh-huh. general, people tend to be more confident than they should. Rationality, Morwedge and Toplak agree, involves not jumping to conclusions, like in the bat and ball problem, and instead being able to look at a problem from multiple angles. Which leads me to another test of your rationality. We'll call it the Linda problem. And here it is. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and she also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. So now that you know all that stuff about Linda, what's more likely? A, she's a bank teller, or B, she's a bank teller who's active in the feminist movement. What do you think? Well, I know what I think because I teach this example. Sure. That's Carrie Mortwidge from Boston University. To me, there's sort of two parts of the problem. There's one, who does, what does Linda seem like as a person? To what kinds of people does she seem similar? And the second question is a probability question, which is, which is she more likely? And those are two different questions. They have different answers. And, and the second question, the probability question, is harder to answer. The answer to the question of, is Linda more likely a bank teller or a bank teller who's active in the feminist movement, is option one. It's more likely Linda's a bank teller. Why? Well, both options say she's a bank teller. So even if there's a high likelihood she's also an active feminist, it's not 100%. And since there's a 100% chance she's a bank teller, any additional qualifications that you add on to that are going to reduce the chance that Linda will meet those qualifications. So it could be that she's an active feminist or that she likes the color red or that she drives a black car. The more descriptors you add, the less likely she is to fit all of them. Again, there's a math component here. But much of the reason that we get in trouble has nothing to do with math. When you think about Linda, immediately you have a mental image of what she looks like or what she's like as a person. You've encountered people like Linda and that... That mental image maps on much more on to the sort of feminist bank teller representation than the bank teller representation. To use Maggie Toplex's phrase, we're acting like cognitive misers. We're embracing preset notions so our brain doesn't have to do too many acrobatics. Carrie Morwidge says he doesn't really like the term cognitive misers because usually such behavior isn't bad at all. We don't really want to assess all the options when it comes to picking out shampoo or finding the best parking space or looking at various colors to paint a room, because if we assessed all that stuff, we'd never get anything done. But when it comes to some decisions, cutting to the chase gets us in trouble. I ask most of my students in class, how long do you spend picking out a new laptop? Mm -hmm. And most of them spend multiple hours. 
And then most of my students, because they're MBAs, have a 401k from their previous employment and ask them, how much time did you spend researching all the different kinds of investment options you had, which are going to constitute the crux of their entire retirement savings? And most of them spent less than 30 minutes, right? So that's that's sort of the when we have the the miser part becomes negative. It's when it has these kinds of negative consequences down the line. That's what's particularly challenging about rationality. Some of our irrationality is rooted in skills that mostly just help us get through the day, except when they backfire. Like, for example, when you interview someone for a job. So the data, for example, suggests that people are actually really terrible at job interviews in terms of from the interviewer's position, right? So you bring in a bunch of candidates. Some look much better and more accomplished. You interview a few people. You really sort of fall in love with one candidate or another based on the interview. And what? then you sort of justify your decision afterwards. Or maybe you look at the whole picture and you have a candidate that you prefer. What we find is that algorithms tend to do better at these kinds of difficult predictions. So should I hire someone? Who's going to succeed in graduate school? Who's going to be, which prisoner should be paroled? In these kinds of cases, there's a lot of information. And what people do is they're inconsistent in the way that they weight different kinds of pieces of information. So take two job candidates. One person has more programming experience. Another person has a higher GPA, right? So if we would think that you should decide how important is programming experience and how important is GPA in predicting success in this job. Um, uh, an algorithm would weight the two things similarly when they're judging both candidates, but people might weight the GPA higher when one judging one candidate and the programming experience higher when judging another. And see, you can see there's entire sort of movies based on this, right? Moneyball is all about how terrible people mm-hmm. are at being consistent when looking at baseball players. I, I like Perez. He's uh, got a classic swing. He's real clean stroke. Do I? I don't know. Uh, Can't hit the curveball. Well, there's some work to be done. I'll admit that. Yeah, but, there is. Uh, he's noticeable. Got an ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Like Kevin Euclid, for example, most people didn't like him because he didn't look like a baseball player, right? Even though he had all the statistics that suggested he'd be a phenomenal baseball player, he still didn't look like one, and so people were had a hard time getting over that kind of discrepancy between what they thought a baseball player looked like and what he looked like. Do you think that is something that often gets in our way when we're trying to be rational, that we think like, hmm, women are like this, or people who went to University of X are like this, or people who have high GPAs? Those are the I, I like that. Even if there's not a lot of evidence to support that the things that we personally have affinity for are any good at predicting anything about success in the future. Yeah, I I do think that we tend to find things that we think work and we marshal a lot of evidence to support those beliefs. And that's partially confirmation bias. That's a tendency when we have a belief about someone or some theory out in the world that we tend to search for evidence to support it and that we tend to evaluate that evidence that we do have as supportive of that hypothesis. So if you think, for example, that um, women might make a better preschool teacher, for example, you might find go and look for cases where there are successful women in this position and there's not successful men. But you'd be less likely to look at the case of how many unsuccessful women are in this position or how many, unsuc- how, how many successful men are there in this position. Or if people have 
views of, you know, women as CEOs. They might be more likely to look for the negative views of women as CEOs. They might be more likely to look for successful men and unsuccessful women Mm -hmm. than look for successful women and unsuccessful men. So it's easy for people to construct these kinds of tests for their theories by looking at selective evidence that supports it. So how do you get out of this irrationality trap? Researcher Maggie Toplak says, let's take the example of a family doctor. Of course, you hope that your family doctor has done great in school and understands anatomy well and all of that. But then if uh, my family doctor was recommending a treatment for me and relied on medical studies conducted with thousands of patients in in deciding on the the right treatment uh, versus remembering that one patient in his or her 20 years of practice that had this adverse reaction to this particular treatment. Well, I'd want this family doctor to to rely on the evidence coming from thousands of cases because that's Uh far more diagnostic. Mm -hmm. Or another example is if I had symptoms that my family doctor had not really seen a lot of before, I would hope that my family doctor wouldn't be overconfident in his or her advice. I would hope that uh, he or she would, you know, refer me on to a specialist or another colleague who had more experience. And all of those types of things are related to rational thinking. Toplak recently co-authored a paper that found a link between being a more rational person and having more positive real-life outcomes. So for her, getting people to be more rational and helping develop that test for it has real urgency. Rationality, it turns out, may be an aspect of human thinking that up to now we have not measured or cared nearly enough about. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you, and I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. We've put together a quiz that will measure your rationality quotient. You can check it out at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Don't know much about algebra. 